All right, well, good morning again. Let's go ahead and grab our Bibles. And we find ourselves in Revelation chapter 2, looking at the fourth of the seven churches of the book of Revelation, the church of Thyatira. And we will be picking it up in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into a into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts, and I will give to each one according to your works. Now, to you I say, and to the rest of Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put you no other burden, but hold fast to what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give the power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. He shall be dashed into pieces like potter's vessels. As I also have received from my Father, I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. When I traveled back when, for either personal reasons or for business, when I would fly to various areas of the country, I would always, of course, come across someone who would ask me where I was from. And I didn't say Schaumburg because nobody would know where that was, so I often would say just the Chicagoland area. And sure enough, I would get one of three questions. Number one, have you ever seen Michael Jordan? <laughs> oh yeah, I have dinner with him weekly, you know. you know. Oh, I hear the streets of Chicago are bad with Al Capone. You know, that was the 1930s, don't you? But the last thing that I always hear, of course, about Chicago and the state of Illinois is, oh, the corrupt state of Illinois, the corrupt politics, the best retirement plan for any governor in the entire United States, full, a full 12 by 12 room with a bed, a cot, and of course, a toilet. The corruption of Illinois is known around the country. In fact, I think we make the list at either number one or two of the most corrupt states in the entire union each year. But corruption isn't simply confined to our secular world. It also can be found within the church. And when a church becomes corrupt, 
It is very difficult to bring that church out of corruption. Usually the church is destroyed by the subtle, slow decay of the corruption that they find within it. And Jesus now addresses a church, a small church, the church of Thyatira, which was some 40 miles southeast of Pergamos. It was a small city in comparison to the cities that were addressed earlier in the chapter. And yet the church there was a small church like the city would reflect, and yet it was already corrupted even in the minimal members that they had. And the corruption was introduced by a woman claiming to be a prophetess who, instead of leading the church in a healthy direction, led them into sin. And the way corruption often begins is from the top down. And Jesus now begins to address it. He calls her Jezebel meaning that she resembles the Jezebel found in 1 Kings chapter 16 through 21 that of course stumbled the entire nation of Israel through her influence of King Ahab and allowing the nation to plummet into idolatry and sexual immorality. Corruption is certainly a problem today. For many of the churches have already discovered and realized the corruption from the top down, and many of the denominations across America are now battling significantly in trying to refute and to return to a more gospel-centered position, especially on social morality. We see it in the Episcopalian Church and other big, large denominations dividing over the LGBTQ community, and what is the biblical response to them. We see it. We see it happening before us. Jesus warns that he will hold those who have created that corruption accountable. He knows who they are, and he will judge them accordingly. But he also shows us that he's given an opportunity of repentance, which she did not take heed to. And as a result, now God must step in. So as we now look again at verse 18, we discover that the church of Thyatira is not only a corrupt church, but a church that would model our modern definition of the word tolerance. Of course, there is a new dictionary in our society being created where words are being redefined to create a context, to define one's actions, etc. The word tolerance is one of those words. The word tolerance used to mean a simple getting along with, as one would say, a showing willingness to allow an existence of opinions or behaviors that one does not necessarily agree with. That's a tolerance. But today, of course, we've moved out of that realm and now require one who claims to be tolerant not only to live peaceably with a person who disagrees with them or you disagreeing with them, uh, but also now we have to affirm everything that they do or say. If we are to be tolerant people, we have to affirm, meaning we have to approve of assist them in that, even if it's directly contrary 
to the Word of God. And as Christians who are obligated, obligated to be truthful, we cannot arbitrarily affirm something that the Bible condemns. And so the church today has been corrupted from the top down in many ways, as the church of Thyatira has, with the redefining of words. There's a movement today in America called progressive Christianity that embodies much of what we are talking about, this corruption, not only leading to the redefinition of the word tolerance, but redefining the word love. That if we truly love someone, we will help them and assist them in obtaining what they believe will make them happy. But that's just the opposite of what the Bible says the true definition of love is. Again, we are commanded to be truthful. If we're going to love someone, we have to be truthful. But when it comes to corruption or this tolerance... As one defined corruption, he said, it's dishonest or fraudulent conduct by those in power, typically involving monetary bribery. He goes on to say that the actions of making someone or something morally deprived or the state of being so, meaning that the effects of the corruption don't remain with the leader, but that leader then permeates it through all that he or she is affecting. And when it comes to tolerance, I like what Greg Laurie wrote when he said, but the tolerance of today is so different than that of years past. They have sort of redefined it because really when people tell you to be tolerant today, in effect, they are telling you not only to accept something, but to prove it, that is to um, support it and even to validate it. They are saying You have no right to say that your version of truth is any better than anyone else's version of truth. Therefore, you should accept and embrace what they believe just as you embrace what you believe. And if you don't, you are intolerant. And I have found that the most intolerant people are the ones that talk about tolerance the most. Because they don't, uh, because they don't, to me, just accept it as far as saying, well, I don't agree with you. No, they want me to endorse them. This is the state that we're in. And of course, not only has it permeated through our secular society, it is now seeping within the church. And the way that this will be avoided, especially here at our church, is from me to you. Because as we see, the corruption begins with those who has been put in a place of authority and leadership. So in verse 18, to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, these things says the Son of God. And he describes himself as who has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like fine brass. Jesus now introduces himself slightly different than he did previously. Before referring to himself as the Son of Man, which was a title for the Messiah, that was originated from the book of Daniel, he now clearly says the Son of God. Of course, by doing so, he is reaffirming his deity, meaning he's reaffirming who he truly is. He is God. 
And being God, he then gives two very specific attributes of his character. Eyes like flames of fire and feet like fine brass. Again, these are again Old Testament allusions. He's alluding to passages in the, in the Old Testament that speak of God as a God of judgment. For eyes of fire means that he sees exactly what is going on to hold them accountable. Number one, he sees exactly what's going on to hold them accountable in his righteousness. You and I only know what we're being told, right? Can you imagine how much more is going on behind the scenes that we are unaware of? And it's scary to think about. All right, that's something I don't personally like to dwell upon. But I do know that God sees everything. And righteously, he will judge accordingly. Now, I hope and pray that they would escape in and through Christ. But if they don't, we know the Bible clearly tells us that they will stand before the great white throne judgment of Revelation chapter 20 and give an account for the books that shall be open, and therefore have to defend themselves if their name is not found written in the book of life. So no one is getting away with anything when it comes to God. He sees it all, and he will hold them accountable accordingly. But not only does he see, but then he furthers it by claiming he has feet of fine brass. This fine brass that he is referring to means that he has the ability to judge. We know the Gospel of John has told us clearly that God the Father has placed the role of judgment of the world in the hands of his son Jesus for the purpose of fulfilling the Messiah's full, um, his full mission. He paid for the sins of the world, so it should be only uh, reasonable that he also holds the world accountable for the sins in which they have committed. Now, I don't want anybody to misinterpret what I'm saying concerning the judgment of God. I'm not being flippant about it, and I in no way want to give the impression that, oh, they're just going to get theirs when it's coming to them. I personally do not wish the judgment of God upon my worst enemy. I pray that all would come to saving faith in and through Jesus Christ. Because I am just one sinner who Christ has found and saved to allow me to escape, not in and of myself, but in the, the covering of the new covenant found in Christ. And if God can save me, he can save anybody. And so I pray that these people would come to saving faith. I pray for those who um, are leading our nation in a direction of destruction because the judgment of God is thorough, severe, and permanent. And I really, really hope that they escape and find salvation in Jesus Christ. But I know that many won't. And it is a comfort to know that God does see and will hold those individuals accountable. Now, there is, there's a historical perspective that we need to understand to help us interpret the text properly, and that is understanding the city of Thyatira itself. There in the city of Thyatira, uniquely, they still had what was called guilds. A guild was a collection of workers who came together and as one voice would be stronger than independent businessmen. 
You had the goldsmith guilds, the metalworking guilds, etc. Similar to our unions today. A union individual is independent and doesn't have nearly as much bargaining power as collective bargaining through a union as one union comes before and negotiates on behalf of all the workers. Now, the Romans were not thrilled with guilds at that time. The reason being is that the guilds could become extremely powerful. Unions have become extremely powerful today, haven't they? Often shaping the direction of key institutions of our country. Of course, we saw that when the Teachers Union of Chicago held the city almost at ransom. When it was safe to go back to classroom learning, they resisted and they used it as a bargaining chip to try to help the teachers even more. And of course, that was at the expense of the students, in my opinion. Both my mom and dad were public school teachers in Chicago. My dad was a principal when he was working in the city of Chicago, and he would have been appalled by what had occurred. But unions can be very powerful. And you also know that unions speaking with one voice can throw an incredible amount of weight behind a political candidate, can't they? They throw their weight behind the candidate. They fund that candidate's campaign. They contribute to it. Even, as we're discovering, the individual members uh, may not hold to the values of that particular candidate, and yet their union does and puts them in a very precarious position. And we see the acts of unions, and this is exactly why the Romans were fearful of it. But they allowed these guilds to continue in Thyatira. And stick with me, I'm going somewhere with all of this. They allowed these uh, guilds to continue because Thyatira was a place of metalworking, unlike any other place in Asia Minor. And most of the military troops were stationed just 40 miles southeast, I mean, northeast of them in the city of Pergamos. And so the guilds there said, hey, you pretty much leave us alone and we'll make the weaponry for the Roman soldiers. But here's the difference. As our unions today support a political candidate, even though many of their members may not, the guilds back then held to various pagan gods. They had patron gods in, which, in whom they worshipped. And the god Apollos was one of them, and Hephaestus was the other one, the god of metalworking. And these gods had to be worshipped and given um, contrition to and observance to by anyone who was found in these guilds. If the individual wasn't willing to pay their adoration to one of these pagan gods, they were cut off not only from society, but also from all business transactions. Because once you were out of a guild, you couldn't work as a non-guild worker. You had to remain in that guild to sell and to buy, etc., and apparently what had happened in the church of Thyatira is this woman prophetess who came to them was teaching the church, it's okay, go ahead, worship these pagan gods. Don't think you have to sacrifice your personal finances for the sake of uh, your Christian faith. But that was contrary to what was true. 
It's interesting because we later on discover that Tertullian wrote concerning this. And as Tertullian was asked about this, because in his day there was those things occurring also, and individuals say, but we have to do this to live. We have to do this to survive. And he asked him the, the question, do you have to live? Meaning, does not the Christian faith require us to lay down our lives, to deny ourselves, take up the cross, and follow after him? This is the severity of the decision that these individuals were making. And yet they approved and allowed in a place of authority this individual named Jezebel, that he's referring to as Jezebel because of her character, this prophetess, who, were, who was undoubtedly affirming and telling them that it was okay and it didn't contradict their Christian faith. And that's where we see the modern definition of toleration in play here in the scriptures. But first, before he corrects them in verse 19, he says, I know your works. And then he describes them. Love, service, faith, and your patience. When we find a list like this, it is often found grammatically in the Greek that because of their love, they served. And because of their faith, they were patient or persevered. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Meaning that they were continuing in good works. So they had good things going on. And yet their core fundamental doctrine and practice was off before the Lord. Now, let's take a moment to think about that. Is it possible for people who don't truly know Christ, who compromise and who are even corrupted to do good things? Yes. But Jesus knew that their adherence to this doctrine of this prophetess Jezebel was ultimately going to destroy them and he needed to correct it beforehand. The reason I say it this way is because I think the American church is slipping into a misunderstanding and they're drawing an improper conclusion. And that is doctrine doesn't matter. I get the impression more and more that more and more churches throughout America are lessening the importance of scriptural accuracy, healthy biblical doctrine for the sense for the sake of inclusion for the sake of unity for the sake of redefined tolerance and love basically saying that the scriptures and because they were written so long ago don't really impact or matter in our modern day society is that true it's certainly not the impression that the apostles had or the followers of the apostles after them or the early church had. The reason the church was healthy from the very beginning was because they held to the apostles' doctrine. This is so important. Doctrine matters. What do I mean by doctrine? Teaching. Teaching matters. And it is truly the only way that we can protect ourselves not only from compromise, which we looked at last week, 
but the avoidance of the corruption that we see taking place in our churches today. He goes on to say, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Now, I think today we would have simply said, oh, you love people, you're serving people, you have faith and you're persevering. Oh, praise God for you. But Jesus says, no, there's a problem. This problem must be addressed. I don't know about you, but have you ever waited too long? You know, you go and you visit your doctor and your doctor says, hey, you know what? You really should take care of that. And you're like, yeah, I'll get around to it, you know, it's just not, is it a real threat? No, it's not a a real threat right now, a real concern right now, but deal with it early, you know, an ounce of prevention is better than a pound of cure. And I'm like, hey, okay, you know, maybe I will when I finally get to it. Then you go back 16 years later, (laughs) and he says, why, you know, you don't have your interactions with your doctor like me. Why didn't you take care of that? Well, you know. And Jesus wanted the church to take care of it before it became any more of a problem than it already was. To nip it in the bud. To take care of it now. And he goes on to say, I have these few things against you. Because you allow, notice that word, allow. Who allowed her into this position? They did. They allowed her prominence within the church. They allowed her to speak into their lives. They gave her a position of authority. And they allowed her to lead them in the error in which she led them. Okay? This is really, really important. They allowed it. Today, we need more than ever to have a discerning church body a discerning church body, knowing right from wrong. To be able to discover uh, truth and error. The Bible tells us that there's two ways discernment is developed in the life of the believer. Number one, it's a spiritual gift. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 tells us clearly that it is a supernatural gift that the Spirit gives to whom He wills to be able to discern. Okay? But Hebrews tells us that there's a second way, and this is something we can control. The gift of discernment, of course, is given by the Spirit as He wills. We can ask for it, but ultimately it's His choice to give it to us. But when it comes to our responsibility in the inquiring of uh, discernment, it is by knowing God's Word. The book of Hebrews tells us that because of the immature state of the believers that they were addressing in Hebrews, because they stuck to the basic principles rather than going on to the meat, they were you know, absolutely consuming milk and they weren't moving on, they were as deep as a teaspoon in their theology, they weren't discerning. In fact, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 Paul tells us very clearly that pastors are there to equip the saints to fulfill the work of the ministry, to lead them into maturity ultimately, and through that maturity be discerning individuals so they are not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. So though we have a spiritual gift of discernment, we also have a personal responsibility when it comes to discernment, and that is... To know God's word. 
Now, I can assist with that on Wednesdays and on Sundays. But nothing, nothing is going to uh, satisfy you more than a personal Bible reading each and every day. Spending time in God's Word. Reading it for yourself. I, I, can't, I, I can't satisfy you simply by Sunday mornings and Wednesdays. That's a supplement to your daily Bible reading. And if you need to, get up early in the morning, read your Word. If, you, if you're a late night person like I am, read it before you go to bed. Read it before you go to bed. Spend time in God's Word. Now, the question I always get asked is, well, Pastor, where do I start? And I'd like to say something to those folks, and I don't mean to be mean, but um, I've never seen anybody check out a library book and ask the librarian, where do I start reading this story? Start at the beginning. Read Genesis. Now, you might take a little perseverance to get through Leviticus, I understand. And you may not glean the spiritual enlightenment that you hope to from the genealogies. But here's what happens. You begin to understand what I call the meta-narrative, the macro idea of Scripture from the creation to the new creation of heaven and earth in the book of Revelation. And then everything in between begins to fall into place and make more sense. That's what happens. But if you're new and you say, you know, the Old Testament is like me jumping into the deep end of the pool without floaties, then let me encourage you to start in the New Testament and read from Matthew to Revelation. But the key is to read, folks, is to read. God has blessed us with His Word. And the only way we're going to create discernment in our life is by knowing God's Word. You know, Chuck Smith used to tell this to us all the time in our pastor's conferences. He said that when the Treasury Department realized that the dollar bill was being counterfeited so readily around the world, they had a problem because the agents couldn't possibly study every single variant and every single counterfeit bill. So what they decided to do is have the agents study the one true dollar bill. And once they knew the true dollar bill so thoroughly any other counterfeit dollar bill that had any kind of error or mistake within it was easily identifiable. So here's what I say. If you're afraid of every wind of doctrine that is coming through the church, don't look to dive into each one of those pools to understand those uh, points you know, individually. Know the Word of God and then approach those things first. So Jesus clearly says, they allowed her who calls herself, notice, she is self-proclaimed a prophetess to teach and to seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. When we were going through the book of James, we come across a very interesting verse that asks Christians to understand that they are capable of committing an adultery against God. An adultery against God. And to help us understand what that adultery looked like, because of course we're married to Christ, aren't we? 
And if we place our affections on other things and allow them to become idols in our lives, we are committing adultery against our Heavenly Father. Now, I know that's difficult to think about, but James uses that language. James was writing undoubtedly to the first century church, to those uh, who were cast abroad, the Jewish individuals who then became Christians. And when we need to look at the origins of James' thinking, I took the congregation to the book of Hosea in the Old Testament, where I believe spiritual adultery is truly defined for us. And we looked at it on a Wednesday evening to understand what it means. She was teaching and leading them in that direction. They allowed her to do so. Not only did she teach these things, but she seduced the servants of God through these things, meaning she was persuasive. You know, Paul told Timothy that in the last days, uh, you know, sound doctrine would be rejected and individuals would raise up for themselves teachers to tickle their ears. Didn't he say that? That's what we see happening, right? Don't tell me what I need to hear. Tell me what I want to hear. And we see that happening. And they wanted to hear these things. It allowed them to be spared from any type of persecution, any type of exclusion. They didn't have to sacrifice their personal wealth to continue on their Christian faith. They were allowed and encouraged to continue on in this sexual immorality and specifically the worship of pagan gods, which sometimes literally was manifested through sexual immorality. And Jesus says, notice this, that when he talks about this sexual immorality, he talks about things sacrificed to idols, he is talking about the worship of these things, and he is forbidding them. Now he says in verse 21, I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. God is very gracious. The, the, one characteristic of God that I just can't wrap my mind around is the long-suffering of God. I just, I, I just have such difficulty with it. I am so glad that I am not God, okay? <laughs> because I don't think I could pers persevere and continue on in the long-suffering that God does. But we know He does so in hopes that all repent, and come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. He gave her time to repent. Talk about grace, right? Talk about uh, mercy. But she didn't heed that. I have often found that in the life of Christians, when they begin to veer off and they begin to get involved in things in their lives that are contrary to Scripture and aren't what God would have for them, it's easy for me to be the pastor and just go to them and just start correcting everybody and, hey, you got to fix this and you got to fix that and you got to fix this. But I've noticed that God works much better than I do. So what I do is I, if I see something that concerns me, the very first thing that I will do before approaching that person, unless it's absolutely necessary that I do so, is I'll pray and say, Lord, get a hold of their hearts. And here's what I've discovered you know what? When God deals with it, He deals with it a lot better than I would. I would often make probably a bigger mess out of things, but His graciousness and His love, knowing that He loves them too much to leave them the way He found them. 
And because God has so much more for you, he doesn't want you to continue in the old life, in the new created life that he's given you. But he gives her an opportunity to repent, an opportunity that she does not, does not take advantage of. So therefore, in verse 22, he says, I will cast her into a sickbed, that is affliction, it means judgment, and those who commit adultery with her in great tribulation, meaning they're going to go through a very difficult time, unless, notice again, he offers this, they repent of their deeds. You know, God often brings about trials in our lives to get our attention, to show us maybe we're heading in the wrong direction. But because He loves us, He never lets us go too far. He always gives us an opportunity because we know that He who has begun a good work in us is faithful to complete it. But these individuals were moving away from Him so rapidly, apparently, He gives them the opportunity, but do they take it? Well, verse 23, And I will kill her children with death. That is, those in whom she's affected with this awful doctrine, this teaching. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts, as we said, of course, the eyes like flames of fire, and will give to each one according to, to your works. Now, there's another group there that were faithful, and he addresses them in verse 24. Now to you I say, and to the rest of Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, but they say, I will put no other burden on you. This is fascinating. There is a move in the American church, and I'm going to say that specifically, that is moving away from a, how do I put it, from a literal understanding of an individual called Satan. There are many Christians who are abandoning that and believing that when the Bible talks about the devil, Satan, Beelzebub, etc., We're not talking about a fallen angel that has rebelled against God. We're talking about the personification of evil in general. Well, I think that's one of the biggest mistakes that you can make. Satan is a roaring lion seeking in whom he may destroy. Satan is real. And when I was asked, well, why do you believe Satan is real? I believe Satan is real because I believe God is real. And God told me who Satan was and what Satan had done to be cast out of heaven. And Satan is working in our world today as the ruler of this world. And all philosophy and thinking and ideology that is apart from Christ all originates from him. Paul the Apostle went one step further. He believed that every idol that was worshipped had a demon behind it provoking the individuals, and even being able to perform certain things for those individuals. But Satan is real. Now, knowing that can scare you. I personally do do not want to meet Satan in a dark alley. I personally don't. Not unless my dad is standing behind me. And I'm not talking about my earthly dad. 
I'm talking about my heavenly Father. The reason I don't fear Satan, though I respect him, and I will not engage him haphazardly like some do through their various ministries rebuking Satan. It's funny because the angels themselves didn't rebuke him. They said, Jesus rebuke you. But here's why I don't tremble with fear. Because he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. And though Satan may be coming after me, I have one defending me that Satan cannot overcome. And that is my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Putting it as the Eric Standard version of the Bible would, my dad is bigger than yours, you know. But Satan is real. There's a clear doctrine of Satan in the Bible, that is that he's an individual uh, fallen angel, and we should see him as such. But notice that Jesus here is clearly telling us that all that is happening through this prophetess is derived from the depths of Satan himself, the deep things of Satan himself. In Acts chapter 20, Paul warned the church very clearly. He said, listen, they're first going to try to destroy you from the outside. They're going to try to persecute you from the outside to stop what God is doing amongst you. But when that comes to an end, and they quickly saw and discovered that the disciples were not discouraged by outward persecution, the church began to thrive and spread throughout the known world at that time. But Paul seemed to be more concerned about the second method in which Satan attacks, and that is from the inside, as a sheep in wolf's a wolf in sheep's clothing, one who would rise up. Jude was so concerned about it that he redirected the whole subject matter of his letter. The book of Jude, he starts out, I wanted to write to you concerning our common salvation, but I can't because these individuals have creeped in in a very stealth-like manner and are sowing false doctrine among you and stumbling the brothers. And he describes these individuals. Peter describes these individuals in his last letter. This is why, again, we need to be discerning Christians by knowing what God's Word says, not only what we believe, but why we believe it. I think it's interesting that YouTubers now no longer call themselves YouTubers. They call themselves influencers. It's interesting to me. What are they influencing us to do? But it's true, isn't it? So many people are educating themselves through YouTube and Facebook and the, oh, I can't, I, I don't even want to say it. Yeah, TikTok, that's what I was going, but the communist app, TikTok, okay? Okay, what's with this balloon flying over America? Come on. Yeah, I mean, and they finally shot it down. It's like, Really? That's the second one. But now we have to worry about Chinese spy balloons and they're offended, they're saying we overreacted. Sometimes I'm glad I'm not president, okay? Are you kidding me? There's a funny picture of, I think the Babylon Bee did it, of the balloon flying over southern states and there's a picture of them with shotguns. It's like, welcome to America, pal. Uh, 
It's going to be people with flags in their pickup trucks that are going to save this country. Trust me. But, wow. Uh, but it is interesting, I don't know how we got on that, <clears throat> that Jesus Christ clearly shows that he was for his people. He says, I'm not going to put any further burden on you, those who are faithful. But he simply says to them, hold fast to what you have till I come. Sometimes we can feel overwhelmed by all that is happening around us. You may feel like you're growing tired in your faithfulness towards God. But these words are for you today, but hold fast to what you have till I come. Real assurance for all of us. For he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give the power over the nations. Quoting for us, he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. This is referring to a time in church history called the Millennial Kingdom. It is where Jesus Christ, after his physical return in Revelation 19, establishes his earthly kingdom on this earth. And he reigns from Jerusalem, and you and I, who are his, will reign with him for 1,000 years. And it's interesting to see that millennial kingdom. If you're interested and if you can find it, a gentleman named Norman Geisler, a man who really influenced me, really describes why the millennial kingdom is so necessary and why I personally hold to a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on this earth. But that being said, he now promises those who are faithful to the end to rule with him during this time. And he says here, as I also have received from my father, and I will give to him the morning star. During the Roman Empire, they often would have these stations, these pillars that they would carry. And on those pillars, it, they would have the goddess Venus that was represented by a morning star. And they believed that by doing so and by putting her before them, they were indefeatable. They, they would never be defeated. And as a result, though, uh, Jesus comes back and says, no, I am the true morning star. Real victory is found in and through me, not through any pagan god. And often you find this in the Bible where God contends with the pagan gods, showing his superiority from the uh, Exodus in, uh, in the book of Exodus and also to the book of Revelation. But the morning star was also known as a symbol of hope. For, of course, it's darkest before the dawn. And at the darkest point of night, a morning star would often shine brightly showing that the time of darkness was coming to an end and that the dawn was soon about to shone. And Jesus says, not only will I lead you in victory, but I am your hope and I give you the assurance of the morning star that you may be confident until I come for you. And he then says in verse 29, 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You and I live in a very interesting time, to say the least. It's a time where we are going to have to be more discerning now than we've ever been before. For the battles are endless around us. We're contending, as Jude says, on every side. We have to be discerning. But I have to, I have to say this, and I hope I don't offend anybody by doing so. But folks, we cannot develop our theological understanding of God and therefore our discernment if we are only consuming a diet of social media. We can't. Oh, sure, there's good things on YouTube and there's good things on other social media platforms that might encourage you, but that can't be our sole diet. We cannot form our theological opinions simply on a three-minute TikTok video or a teaching on YouTube. Because for every one solid doctrinal video, there are probably 30 that are just off base. The only way that I can assure you that you will remain steadfast and healthy is by knowing this book. And it starts with reading it. There's no way of getting around that. You're not going to put this underneath your pillow and by osmosis absorb all the information within it. We need to know what God said. Remember when Satan came and tempted Eve, the very first thing that he said to her, did God really say that? We need to know what God said. Jesus, when he was tempted by the devil, knew exactly what God said and was able to refute him. We need to know this book. And if you haven't started a personal daily reading plan, will you start today? That's the only way that we're going to be discerning in these times and not allow individuals to lead us astray. Because I am concerned where I see doctrinal integrity being abandoned for social justice, social inclusion, etc. Guys, it's only a matter of time where we find the church then bankrupt and impotent in its endeavors the moment we abandon God's word. Amen?